This is Rags. And this is Salas. Welcome to Samosa Caucus. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a couple of topics that kind of fall within current events and immigration, uh, and one about a South Asian politician. So let's get cracking. The first thing uh, we're going to talk about today will be the Rohingya crisis that's going on in uh, Myanmar, uh, also known as Burma. With, with the Rohingya crisis, just to give some background, we you have a group of people between Myanmar and Bangladesh, and they've never really been accepted, I guess, by Myanmar society. Yeah. And just to, just to kind of go back a little bit, this actually started back in 48. Essentially, when uh, Myanmar got independence, they kind of had this act that was written in that kind of uh, excluded citizenship to a, a chunk of people uh, in the Rakhine state, which is the westernmost state that's right in between, uh, that's kind of right near Bangladesh. Separate from the Rohingya who'd been living there from the 12th century, laborers moved over into that area from Bangladesh. And, you know, within British rule, uh, British considered that to be uh, inter-union kind of migration, uh, sort of like migrating between states in the U.S. And so they they were fine with it. But when they when Myanmar got independence, they said, hey, a bunch of these people came in and they're not actually Burmese or they shouldn't be here uh, kind of thing. So they wrote this Citizenship Act and that kind of made it uh, really difficult for anyone in that region to prove that they were uh, actually uh, Burmese. Uh, But then they said, if you're Rohingya, you can still apply and get this ID card. But it was more like a permanent residency. It's like, hey, if you can kind of prove that you've been living here for a couple generations, we'll give you this permanent resident card. After that happened in the 80s, 82, they actually stripped them of all citizenship. And they said, there's no such thing as Rohingya. Uh, They basically said, you as a people don't exist and you're not really from Myanmar and you're not really, Rohingya is not even a real word. It's a made up word for illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. So we're just going to exclude you. And in 82, that's when they just became stateless. And if you can imagine what that means is you, you just don't have any passport. So they're, they're uh, this large swath of people just don't have any citizenship. Uh, now, recently they uh, said, okay, fine, you can come back. But if you can prove that you're Burmese, then that's fine. We'll let you back in. Problem is, all these people had to run, leaving their villages that were being set on fire. And they didn't, you know, don't have documents. Plus, they're stateless because they've been stripped of citizenship. So technically, there's no way they can prove that they're that's where they're there from. Were, there were hundreds of thousands of people pushed out, um, villages set on fire, women raped, men killed. Um, and in a village, you would have just a few people who were able to hide away um, and possibly survive and then go um, miles and miles to the border um, to try to cross over to Bangladesh. Yeah, either across the sea itself or across like they, they take a bo- they take these rickety boats, they load load them up um, just like Syrian refugees have had to and have had to like cross a few miles, but those few miles are are hard enough, like far enough out in the ocean and coming, it's kind of like you have to loop around uh, that, you know, people have, lots of people have died doing that or they just have to flood in. Now, on top of that, uh, one of the things to note is if you were a Buddhist living in those regions in Rakhine, the government uh, specifically would kind of evacuate you or give you supplies or help you out. Whereas if you were um, Rohingya, basically they were, they were, you know, just setting their stuff on fire and then just chasing them out of there. The military, on top of that, what they would do is they would go in and set all these landmines at the edge of uh, Rakhine State 
and kind of in, in that in-between no man's land between uh, Myanmar and Burma, so that if the people tried to flee back uh, from those areas, then they basically step on landmines and they would die. And because there's landmines planted all over there, they can't do anything. The military has been doing this since 2013. And uh, the international community, I guess, thought, okay, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, Nobel Laureate, 2015, she's elected, democracy's there, woohoo, you know, like, life's great. Uh, but clearly, she's not been able to really push uh, their military rulers to stop doing what they're doing. So to, to highlight that irony, um, one thing she said was, it is undeniably easier to ignore the hardships of those who are too weak to demand their rights than to respond sensitively to their needs. So be, she realized these problems before she became a leader, that she, as a leader, she would need to take these steps. But then when she became a leader, she was either unable, unwilling to actually live up to the high ideals that she set for herself. Um, and partially, partly that may be because it's a fragile state and the military has its own mind and she might be afraid that if she exercised the the power that she had as at a as a civil leader she would no longer have that power that she'd be stripped of that power yeah that's that's actually a good thing to bring up right so the question you got to ask yourself if you're looking at Aung San Suu Kyi and you're like hey you know this person we believed in her the world believed in her she gave she got a Nobel prize she's supposed to be like this kind of bastion of goodness and she's like looking out uh you know and things are looking ahead for Myanmar and welcome back to the international community and you're like what is going on why is she coming out and saying like she's made statements like you know Rohingya are really illegal uh there's a lot of fake news in the media she's essentially said she's denied any of this is happening and if you were like me a cynic of sorts you would then have to question now has she just like you know, kind of gotten into power and now she's like unmasking the evil that she truly is? Or is she kind of being held hostage, right? Or the government or the military is like, hey, listen, we, we gave you, we allowed you to play in, play here and be uh, all politics and democracy and everything. And that's great. But if you stand against us, like you were saying, then, you know, we're just going to have to take you out. And then, you know, everything's just going to go back to the way it is because nobody else really cares. And we were in power for all that time. Nothing's really made a big difference for us. We don't care that much about, you know, seeming like we've kind of come out of that uh, situation. So I, I I don't know what to make of uh, what's happened to Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, honestly. I, I, on the one hand, I really think that she's, she's being her hand's being forced. Uh, I don't know how or what they have against her. So but... there's an interesting um, paragraph in the New York Times, actually. It's, it goes, diplomats say Ms. Aung San Suu Kyi used to express sympathy for the Rohingya in private, explaining that she could not speak out because of the widespread hatred for them among the Buddhist majority. But over the past year or so, she has begun implying that the Rohingya are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. So I think that, that speaks to this private versus public um, tension. And it's also interesting, this, this dynamic that in this case, it's Buddhists committing a genocide against Muslims. Um, and it, if you look at it from the American perspective, where we often stereotype Buddhists as 
the religion of peace and like you know there's a uh, this pure this kind of pure uh, association with meditation the buddha and like enlightenment and whatnot and in fact this is this is true of the uh, buddhist majority in sri lanka the buddhist majorities in both of these countries have extreme elements among them who obviously advocate the use of violence or are okay or somehow are justifying the use of violence within their own religion to say this is allowed in order for us to address this quote-unquote problem of um, whatever other ethnicity or culture or whatever is there. So, I, I mean, it, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, if, you, if you're of the ilk that a certain religion uh, is better or worse than any other religion, you know, you really should think about it and just say extreme elements in any religion, they're just bad uh, in general. And so making this distinction and saying, well, look at, you know, Muslims or look at Islam and, you know, they have ISIS and all these people, they're all evil. Well, then if you want, if you want to take that line, then you should look at Buddhists and say, oh, oh, look at Buddhists. They're so evil. They're all evil. They're all like violent and they're all full of hatred. And the Buddha was just a mean, evil person. It's like, it's just not and obviously true. you could do that with... Christianity, you could do that with Hinduism, you could even do that with atheism, various places in the world. So I, I think it's more a function of democracy than anything. It's one of the, the flaws of democracy is that, and obviously, I, I think democracy is the best system, but there, there are flaws that we should understand. And one of that is that in times of turmoil and change, the majority can have too too much power and use that against the minority right and it, they might yes to your point it's an unbalanced uh power right so the idea of a democracy is that we protect everyone around us including the minorities we don't try and justify uh one side versus the other um and you know that's i think what we should keep aspiring to but this this particular issue is is it's crazy because um this is literally another genocide happening right in front of us. Um, over a million Rohingya displaced since 1970. Uh, some of these stats are just staggering. I mean, over 400,000 people have been displaced since May. The last few weeks, apparently since September, there's been tens of thousands per week that are just being displaced. Uh, no, well, not per week. It's like about a thousand a day, I think, is what what it's been, what they're what they're estimating. Uh, I think they said something like twenty thousand um, through September or something like that. Uh, it, I mean, it's the, these numbers. I mean, we take these numbers into consideration, man. I mean, that's a, it's just a lot of people, you know. And it's it, where are these people going to go? They don't. It's not not the fact that they forget about having a future, trying to figure out like what to do. They are. They were stateless to begin with. They're being driven out of this place into Bangladesh, which itself is not really doing great. It's not Bangladesh is, you know, somewhat stable a country, but they have their own issues. They have a lot of people overpopulation, lots of flooding, lots of issues with people in low lying areas that are increasingly losing their homes. And you know, you now have like a couple hundred thousand people who've recently just crossed over into Bangladesh. And now more crossing in, and Burma's just like, nope, we're not going to take them back unless you tell, unless you prove us, prove to us that they're actually Burmese. We're not going to take them back. And they're like, dude, you can't just keep doing this. And and some of the stuff that they've been saying is it's just insane. I mean, to give you an example, right through this conflict in the last like few months, 160 plus thousand people have been displaced. Right, like I just pulled up a list of cities in the U.S. Like Eugene, Oregon, as 166,000, 168,000 Rohingya have been displaced. 
right? Uh, Salem, Oregon, less than 168,000. These are all less than 168,000 people uh, in the U.S., right? I'm just picking out like big known cities, Sunnyvale, California, where I live, you know, 150,000 people. This is essentially just think about Kansas City, Kansas, 150,000 people. You know, the, I mean, if, if you look at some of the list of these places, these, you know, cities in the U.S., imagine, if you will, that every, if you live in one of these areas, and just go Google it up, right? It's on Wikipedia, list of United States cities by population. See research out there that proves that once you start talking about, if you talk about one person uh, being in trouble, then you, you really empathize with that situation, with that person. You're like, oh, my God, that's awful. It sucks. Ten people, you can empathize. Oh, my God, it's awful. It sucks more than 10, like 50, 100 people, your empathy level starts decreasing, not because, you know, you just can't do it. It's just you can't process th that some a calamity of that sort has befallen that number of people because at a certain point, you, your mind just kind of saturates out into being able to extrapolate what that means. So when you're talking about tens of hundreds of thousands of people, there's a million Rohingya people have been displaced um, along with, you know, several hundred thousand internally displaced people within Rakhine State, meaning... I live in the Bay Area and I've, I'm Rohingya, I've been displaced, then I'm, if, I'm going, if I'm going and living out and I'm pushed out and go live out in Death Valley, then I'm, I'm an internally displaced person because I don't have anywhere else to go. I'm still in the state that I'm in, I'm still where I am, but none of my belongings are there and none of the surroundings are anything that I know. It's foreign, it's a foreign place for me because I'm just not where home is, right? So I... I it's it's a it's a horrible conflict uh, which doesn't seem to be um, coming to an end. I, I'm hopeful that maybe after ISIS has somewhat been tackled um, and you know because it seems like more and more ground is being gained there in the Middle East, um, we can we can kind of uh, shift back and deal with the Syrian refugee crisis. Hopefully, get uh, Syrian refugees back. But the point is, like, for that all that to happen, and if we're saying we're we're just gonna, there's too much stuff going on in the world right now, so we're gonna wait to deal with that than this. Then it's I don't know where the end is, right? But the big difference here as well is the fact that the refugees here again are you know primarily Muslim uh, in the South Asian subcontinent. It's more, a little bit more localized. So do you feel that? because these refugees aren't specifically trying to travel to other places in Europe and they're kind of in and around South Asia or mostly just in that area, that they're just getting lost in the clutter right now? Uh, what clutter? What do you mean by clutter? You know, thousands of refugees coming from North Africa, going into Europe, overwhelming Euro European infrastructure, European cities. Uh, you have uh, people trying to emigrate to the U.S., emigrate to other places. Then you have like refugee crisis um, in, on Manus Island. Uh, Australia. Um, so there's all these refugee crises that the uh, so-called first world countries are dealing yeah, with. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a second order priority for America and for Europe, partially because it doesn't directly impact. So it's something that we get sad about, but something that we don't see a direct avenue for helping with, especially since the next step's not clear. To me, it's it's stunning that we can't, that nobody in the world has the ability to stop Burma um, or Burmese military. I'm guessing the world police is just stretched really thin at the moment. Why is there this crisis that's just unfolding in Myanmar? And, you know, why is there less of an outrage from a lot of these other countries? Or why is there such inaction? Um, I'd be, be curious to know. But... Uh, but I think we, we can, uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that topic. The next thing I think we should hop on to, 
that we want to talk about is Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, as you know, it got hit by a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, recently. I think it was uh, end of September uh, is when it hit. And I believe they've restored a fair chunk of services. Uh, initially, it was really bad. Uh, for those unaware, a lot of infrastructure got taken down. A lot of their electric grid was completely wiped out. Uh, they're riddled in some massive debt from before. And they've been treated a little less than uh, some, what some might consider fair uh, when, when it comes to aid being given or the speed of aid uh, or other things. So uh, one of the things that uh, frequently uh, was brought up was the uh, Jones Act. Um, initially. And what the Jones Act is, uh, is it's a, it, it's, it's basically a rule that came out in the 20s that said, if you uh, are going from one U.S. port to another, you need to use U.S. Um, companies and U.S. ships or U.S. built ships specifically, I believe. Um, and this was this they put out in the 1920s to protect the shipping industry, American shipping industry. Uh, important to note, back then, you know, we were decent. We weren't really anywhere near the world's best, but they wanted to help them out. So they created this industry or they created this protection for the industry. Uh, fast forward almost 100 years. Uh, most of the Asian countries are the ones that have a majority of the shipping routes and shipping lines and such. Uh, and so to give you an idea, if if a uh, if let's say Puerto Rico wanted to get import some stuff from um, Jamaica, right? Jamaica can't ship something to Puerto Rico. You have to go from Jamaica to mainland U.S. to like Jacksonville or something. And then from there, you, you can take those. You have to get on an American ship. You have to deep, take all the stuff out of whatever container sh shipping line you're using, move it onto an American con uh, ship or shipping company or shipping containers. And then, then that ship goes to Puerto Rico and delivers goods, which leads to a massive increase in the price of goods in Puerto Rico Already, I think uh, almost 50% of the territory is uh, living under poverty. There, there's a lot of skews in terms of how they are engaged with the U.S. government. The Jones Act was suspended for both Texas and Florida after their hurricanes, but I think it was just um, suspended for maybe a, a few days or a week for Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rico situation is a real-time example of how colonization plays out in that it doesn't have any representation in Congress, in the Senate. They have U.S. citizenship, but they don't have any voting rights for anything that matters in on the mainland. Um, so they can't impact how much aid they're going to get or what their priority is. So Again, if something similar happened in terms of a, a devastating hurricane in in Texas and Florida, um, and they were able to marshal resources to help out the situation fairly quickly, but in Puerto Rico, that still ha hasn't been done. I um I don't know if you have the latest um power figures. It's like seventy percent restored or something. That's at least on their website. So there's a Puerto Rico dot. Uh, pr.status.gov or something there's a there's a status page where they have a list of statistics of uh, what services have been restored there a lot of their gas stations i believe are working a lot of ports are 100 percent operational going back to uh, the point about their representation so i do know that puerto rico has tried to get statehood 
several times. And it's been kind of a back and forth. I know there's a certain set of the population that's like, no, we don't want to be uh, part of the U.S. because then they're going to impose uh, kind of their will upon us uh, to some sense. So they're like, we would rather be a self-governing, you know, kind of commonwealth like territory instead of uh, actual uh, full state. But in June, they held a referendum and... 97% of the people who voted, voted for statehood. Problem was the voter turnout was 23%. So, you know, (laughs) but, um, and again, like I got these numbers off of uh, a Wikipedia article and, um, you know, it, there's, there's a mention in there. It said that, uh, during the admission process, uh, Wisconsin statehood plebiscite had a 17% turnout. Arizona had 7%. Hawaii had 35% and Alaska only had a 21% turnout, uh, which means that 23% voter turnout to get uh, statehood may sound like, well, you know, that's that's too little, but still valid in some sense, I guess. And I know tens of thousands of people are leaving Puerto Rico to head to the mainland because there are more opportunities on the mainland and they have U.S. citizenship. So there's that aspect. A couple of reasons I wanted to talk about Puerto Rico um, on this podcast were one, one is climate change because it's impact. It's starting to impact the United States as well as it has been impacting South Asia for some time um, with with the flooding and the the climate and the displacement of people. So that there's some relation where we can see. The Rohingya people, obviously, there's always politics involved, but there's also um, flooding and destruction that also lends itself to a, a situation where there's going to be some upheaval. Well, I mean, I, th- I think uh, as far as uh, the Rohingya go, that's going to be something potentially that will affect them if the Bangladeshi government uh, goes through with their plan. Um, so their, the Bangladeshi government had a plan, and uh, I believe in 2015 they came up with it, which they said if there are a bunch of refugees to come in, and already they had a bunch of Rohingya refugees there. So the government said, hey, you know, what we're going to do is we have this small little island uh, that's out there by the Bay of Bengal. It's not really populated. We're going to put all the refugees. We're going to build something with refugees and put them there. The problem is that island, every monsoon, it floods. Like the whole island floods. And that's why people aren't living there in the first place. You're right, exactly. And they're like, well, you know what? We should just put the refugees there. And everyone is like, no, no, this is not a very good idea. We know this place floods. This might not be the best. So as you're talking about climate change and stuff, that's going to affect them more. Um, but with, with Puerto Rico, um, yeah, climate change is obviously... Uh, you know, being an island, uh, it, it's it's something that it needs to, it, that's going to affect it. Uh, but again, it's not going to affect it in the way that people might like. So the Bangladeshi situation where your flooding of low-lying areas occurs is going to be a little different the way it plays out climate change in Puerto Rico, uh, right? So in Puerto Rico, we're going to see more like these kinds of hurricanes or these kinds of uh, extreme weather events that are going to kind of hit a, you know, maybe underprepared population uh, that has, you know, a limited set of resources. And until now, they've kind of been making it by because these hurricanes haven't hit as hard and hit them directly. But now, uh, after Maria, you know, you, and and as they're predicting more of these extreme weather events in the coming decades, you really have to wonder how much um, a lot of these Caribbean islands and such are uh, going to be repopulated or rebuilt. And is it... 
Is it now? Is it so now they said the electric grid is down. If we build it back up, is it okay then for everyone to kind of move back? Is it something that we're comfortable with uh, as, a, as a whole? Um, or is it like, hey, you know, at some point soon, we need to think of a contingency plan for everyone living there because that's just not going to fly anymore. Um, you know, so we're going to have to start resettling population. But this is an interesting uh, conundrum because you aren't really resettling population, right? Um, and this goes back to, you know, what we said at the beginning of the show uh, about uh, both uh, the Rohingya uh, topic and the Puerto Rico topic falling into immigration and current events. Um, so with the Rohingya topic, um, immigration um, in the sense is of a stateless people who are being, uh, who are essentially being forced to flee as refugees into a neighboring country. Puerto Rico, um, the, the moment the people who are able to leave are leaving, um, it, it's going to bring a plethora of issues, right? First of all, uh, you, you, you can't put a cap on the number of people from Puerto Rico leaving uh, or coming to the U.S. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating that we should uh, or a- anything like that should ever be put in place because, A, they are Americans. Um, and so, um, yes, uh, they, I, I, if I were living in Puerto Rico right now, uh, it would, I would hate to leave the island because it's a beautiful island. I've been there. Uh, but if, if I had a family, then I would strongly consider just relocating the mainland. Um, and, you know, I don't have to deal with visa issues, nothing. I'm a citizen. I'm good. Um, I'd hate to leave my home, but it, it's something I would have to strongly consider if I had means. Um, and so the way this is, I think, going to play out um, is there's a lot of interesting articles about how there are a lot of Puerto Ricans who are actually moving into the Florida area. And so in Florida, over the last several decades, uh, the main latin community has been the cuban community um now uh what they're saying is the puerto rican community because of this new influx is resettling there and it's it's causing a shift uh in the um in kind of the way the latin community uh is potentially going to vote and how they're going to affect uh future races uh presidential or otherwise um, mostly because Puerto Ricans in general, I, I believe the number was three to one uh, go Democrat um, or something like that. Uh, and so and so Florida being a swing state, this this could uh, very easily come back and uh, bite the Republicans uh, in the next uh, presidential race, especially because of a lot of the incendiary comments uh, made by the current administration, the uh, lack of support. I, I think the um, San Juan mayor in particular has been very outspoken in criticizing the response from the, the federal government. There's one, it was a delayed response because Trump was golfing that day. And then when he did go down around a week later in an unfortunate photo op, he, he threw paper towels into the crowd, which it's very disrespectful, extremely disrespectful. Yeah, I thought that was, I, I mean, I don't know how you can, how anyone can see that. Um, I mean, especially, you know, that doesn't matter. Like left, right, doesn't matter, right? Like you, you see that you're you're going to a community where you're trying to hand out goods for people who've just lost everything or lost their homes and they're just really shell-shocked and they're looking for people to come in and, you know, just hold their hands, shake their hands and say, hey, you know, it'll be okay, we'll help you out. Instead, so you go in there and you're like throwing, like throwing paper towels. Like people are throwing, you know, it reminded me of like 
if you if you watch like either sports games like NBA games or something at the end of the game or at the very beginning of the game you know or at like halftime you have uh, either the cheerleaders or the mascots or something like shoot t-shirts into the audience you know like he's just like tossing them in like he's kind of like making jump shots and it's like yo man like do you understand like where you where you're standing at right now can like, you imagine if after Houston flooded he had gone down to Houston and just made light of their situation and said it's not that bad yeah huh Think about it, like $70 billion in losses is what they're expecting in Puerto Rico. I mean, they're talking about like the whole electric grid going down, uh, you know, to to make light of that. I don't know. That's weird. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how, how that affects uh, the next election uh, for sure. It's going to be interesting. One other thing that we could look at the Puerto Rico situation and the Rohingya situation is originally they were saying 32 people had died in Puerto Rico for I think they... Then they left it at this number for quite a while because people were not able to go in and count. It was such devastation that there was no way of going in and figuring out how many people validating yeah, actually validating those numbers. And then when they finally did come up with something, we estimate it was uh, north of a thousand. Um, so it jumped from thirty-two to north of a thousand pretty quickly because all you can do is estimate and similar to when we're talking about the Rohingya with 160,000 when it's that kind of number you're almost doing a survey of popular like just kind of like a there used to be these villages there used to be uh, these areas were populated and now they're no longer populated there's no way to craziest thing is the Myanmar government is like what are you talking about this is all fake news nothing's really happening and then they you know all these governments are like publishing satellite images of like here's a before picture of like what these villages used to be and there's an after picture where everything else is still green around them in these fields except for these villages that are entirely brown because they've just been burned to the ground they've literally been burning villages to the ground now they just don't exist yeah and if everybody you ever knew was killed next to you who would even know that you existed it's almost a philosophical question at that point where where you have like if you have a situation like the fires in Northern California, which were really bad, but were responded to in a efficient and effective way. You have a process to figure out who passed away. In Puerto Rico, there's less of a process because there was larger area of devastation and it lasted for longer. They weren't able to figure that and most importantly, communication is still not entirely restored everywhere. There's another interesting uh, uh, parallel. Essentially, if you're in Puerto Rico this past month and you were in need of either medical supplies or if you basic medical supplies, say you have diabetes, you need insulin, you uh, you need oxygen tanks, you know, you know, older, whatever, you've had surgery, something, uh, you need dialysis, you know, all of these services that you would take for granted here. Uh, in the mainland, sure, there. I'm sure there are places in the country where you have like empty spaces where you know it's harder for people. Rural areas where it's harder for people to get to some of these services, but nonetheless, there's there's an ability to get there. In Puerto Rico, you can go to the hospitals. Potentially, you could go to these. You could go to these places, and they would just be like, "Sorry, we just don't have anything. You kind of are on your own, and we really hope you make yeah, it." Yeah, or they're no longer functional, and then. You, they don't have bought for anyone. It's not even that they're full. It's that they're not functional anymore. Right, and you know, it's just that's. Um, it's really sad that uh, American citizens 
who are, in fact, what was it a poll that uh, was released that said something like only 50% or 53% or something of Americans actually knew that Puerto Ricans were American citizens. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's important that when you say stuff like, I want to make America great again, uh, when you, uh, as, as a, as a, you know, country are are all about saving American lives overseas. Uh, you 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 go the extra step where if you're in a foreign country and you contact the American embassy and you're an American citizen, the embassy is going to come to your aid and help you out and do all these things. And you have this dependence and you know your country has your back. That you you don't say here's a, here's a set of people that are citizens of our country, uh, but we are we're just not going to look after you because you know. You're an island away from us. <laughs> you know? There was there's an article in the post that um, some people who got FEMA aid in Texas thought that the people in Puerto Rico should not be getting FEMA aid. There there was there was a solid percentage of people that applies to. Yeah, but I mean I'm not not very surprised there, right? Like I mean, there's a, probably a solid percent of people in the South somewhere. Uh, I'm sure we could find a group of people or a city where you and I could go and. Uh, interview them and be like hey you know we're americans you think we should still be american and they'd be like no <laughs> you know it doesn't doesn't mean anything like you i mean like it, it means something but it doesn't and the reason i say that is because uh you know you you can go to these to people all over or you can go to a po- set of population and you again same thing i've said in like other episodes i guess you you can ask the a question a certain way and people react or answer and you're basing everything on the fact that the first hundred people you asked give you a accurate enough uh, assessment of the next hundred and the hundred after that and the hundred after that and so you can extrapolate information from there what if you just ask the wrong hundred to begin with or the wrong thousand right like you ask you you just happen to have the skewed thousand uh, because they were maybe not as forthcoming about their information anyway well, one other one other thing i wanted to bring up about the um before we move on i wanted to bring up about the rohingya situation and you, you talked about the lack of communication making it hard to gauge what was actually going on on the ground there were rohingya who were posting about their situation on facebook um because that's often their primary vehicle of communication online is facebook and Facebook was removing those posts for breaking the terms of service. So they were actually making it harder to gauge what's going on in this situation to understand where aid is needed, to understand the depths of the suffering and how to ease that suffering potentially because of because they felt like other people couldn't handle it. So they were removing it from their site. Is it because they said they were the images were too graphic or the... Or what they said was, gra- I mean, what was the actual... They said, we removed the post because it doesn't follow the Facebook community standards. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's very, it's very, uh, very specific that way. I see. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, this, this again goes back to, you know, at that point, so why, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, um, and, and this, this is why it becomes important again uh, to ask some of these tough questions about the tech commu- community as a whole, right? The idea is not to disparage any of these companies and what they've built and what they are building, which is amazing, right? They're adding to the human experience, which is great. But at the same time, it's important to know that saying, hey, sorry, our software is automated, 
So these posts go down. They're not like really some human removing them. It's just our terms and conditions. It's just our policy. Uh, we can't really reveal anymore because it's our policy. I mean, for you to rest on that, knowing full well that what you're doing uh, has a pretty massive impact on the other person or the community that you're uh, that you're you're doing this to, and it, it's specifically during times of a conflict. Uh, I think I think it, I find it very hard pressed to understand how any tech company can claim that they either were not able to um, do it uh, at the speed that uh, people expected them to or that, oh, you know, this was just automated software or something else. It's not acceptable. Not only is it not acceptable, it's untrue because the amount of monitoring and the amount of uh, alerts and things that they have set up all across the place, uh, they, it, it is... I wouldn't, given that there's, I, I can understand if some automated software started removing stuff and somebody contacted uh, support and said, hey, everything the last uh, day, a couple of days, even a week has been like things have been removed, whatever. At that point, the escalation path should be pretty easy to go up quick and say, okay, well, this is clearly, you know, something we need to tweak. Let's hop on this. But they're choosing not to do it. You know, I mean, they're choosing to prioritize something else over this uh, and, I, I still don't know how I entirely feel about it. And I, I wouldn't mind having a conversation with somebody in the tech community further about why, like, what are the reasons behind this? Like, why is this need? And what, how are you actually using this as a justification? And is it valid justification? Maybe there's something we don't understand about the process, but I, I think you and I are on the same page, having somewhat dealt with tech <laughs> for a while uh, about why this is such a hard thing to kind of process or work through. Yeah, and right? I think that part of it might not even be technological, but part of it might be, again, similar to what we saw in the election. They just haven't given it enough thought. I, although the election thing not being given thought, uh, I don't know about that. Maybe we can discuss that further in another episode. Yeah, that's uh, another episode. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's another we'll, episode. We'll but... put a pin in that one. And... Yeah, yeah. Um, and so let's, let's hop on to our, our next topic, which... I think Salas is more excited, far more excited than, you know, anyone, anyone else who's even <laughs> listening to talk about this topic. Right. So uh, we have a new head of the New Democratic Party in Canada. His name is Jagmeet Singh. Um, he's the first non-white representative of a major party in the Canadian government. And he's going to be going against Trudeau and also a conservative candidate in the general election. Jagmeet Singh is 36 years old. He grew up poor, working class family. He's had experience is that he talks about pretty um, extensively about um, racism and being stopped by the police unfairly or targeted, I guess, by the police in Canada. They call it carded, where you're, um, I guess, approached and asked, who are you? Why are you here? And can I see like your papers and can you verify, et cetera, et cetera. So the closest thing we would have here is somewhere in between a stop and frisk and uh, the Arizona law. But even the Arizona law actually states that you have to be breaking the law somehow. So it's like you have a broken taillight. I'm going to pull you over for a broken taillight and be like, hey, so you're brown. Are you from this country? Like, or, you know, you're jaywalking. And they're like, hey, man, you're jaywalking. So are you from this country? Whereas like the Canada law, I believe is like, you could just be hanging out on the street, walking down the road, and they could be like, hey, you from this country, eh? 
and uh, I, I guess they you just have to show your papers. So, and just to quickly point out, in the couple minutes we've talked about this, uh, the U.S. already had a black president before they had their first non-white head of a party. And contrary to what most people in most countries and most of the world thinks about the U.S. and stop and frisk and the way our policing is, a stop and frisk is illegal in this country, even though some folks want to bring it back. And uh, number two, even the Arizona law, which is obviously extremely regressive, is at least like at least making an attempt to be like, well, you know, if you do something illegal, you know, whereas in Canada, it's kind of like, oh, we're so friendly, welcoming, we love everyone, but we're going to ask you your papers whenever we want to. Wow, okay? I never knew you were that pro-American or anti-Canadian. I'm not. I, I just feel like uh, it's it's another, it's similar to when, so I have a close friend of mine who, you know, who's traveled uh, to Europe a fair bit and other parts of the world. And uh, inevitably, and he's a, he's similar to me where, you know, he, he, kind of grew up in the Middle East, and then he moved here uh, just about high school, and then he's lived here since. He's traveled a lot during the Bush presidency. He constantly got, oh, well, you know, your country sucks, da-da-da, and from Europeans. And so he would just be like, well, it's not like your colonial past has been great, you know? Like, so you shouldn't really be talking smack about us. So I feel very similarly uh, in the sense that, you know, America's, as an American, yes, I I do judge uh, the U.S., you know, harshly, I think, but that's like out of love. But at the same time, like if, if the, if somebody else is like just throwing stones at us, I'd be like, okay, dude, like you're not living in like magical fairyland here. Like, you know, you, you got, y'all got flaws too. So just uh, slow your roll there a little bit. I remember uh, back, was it 2005 maybe? But there's a time when Bush, George W. Bush was at a news conference in Iraq and this Iraqi journalist took took off one of his slippers and flung it at G Dub, and he he had the moves and he like ducked the slipper real quick, uh, but you know apparently you know it's a big sign of insult in that area where if you throw your shoe at someone it's a it's a huge insult and so he was insulting president. I wasn't a I hadn't become a citizen by then, but even then, I was like okay if you're if you're gonna take your slipper and throw it at our president like that's not that's not cool man like as you know you're a, you're a journalist like, you're sitting there in a news conference you can't be flinging slippers at a, an american president you just can't do it um anyway that, that's just that's just me that's that's why i brought it up but coming back to jagmeet singh right he won a hotly contested election one thing that i guess gave him some additional prominence that kind of separated him from the other candidates at least so we would see about, see it in america i don't know how much of an impact that's made in Canada among his voters. But there was one incident where a racist woman went up to him and started shouting at him about Sharia law when he he's Sikh. He's not even, he's not even Muslim. Not Yeah. I, I mean, so he's at an event. So to, let me, let me know if any of this is off. He's at, she, he's at this event and he's talking, he's giving a speech. This lady, white lady, pops up and says, starts talking about, you know, you're not from this community, you're not from this country, and you're not, you know, you're all about Sharia law, and you just want to bring terrorism, and you're a terrorist, da, da, da. and um, I, you know, at this point, this is like maybe, this might have been the first or second video or second thing about him that you shared with me, and so I watched this, and I was like, huh, you know, what was very striking was his composure, and then he, what, what was it that he said? Love and understanding. Yes. So he just kept saying, we're not going to throw you out. We're not going to, like, we're going to have a conversation, but we're going to 
you know, we're going to get to the same place through love and understanding. And he kept saying it. It was so funny because he said it like five times or ten times. And this lady just kept trying to scream over him, scream over him. And then finally she just got mad and left. And he just kept saying love and understanding. Love and understanding. <laughs> love and understanding. <laughs> and was just, he said, this is not a problem. We're all friends here. We can ha- Basically, we can handle this like adults. This is not an issue. He, he was... He kept his composure and made sure that he did not get into a shouting match with yeah, her. Yeah, because I'm sure everyone was tense. Like, everyone was like, oh, my God, what is this woman going to do to him? And he was he was very kind of calm about it. And he said, okay, look, man, like, I'm not, you know, let's just okay, let's just converse, have a conversation. He talked her down, talked her down and dealt with her really well, I thought. Um, it, was, it was pretty, it was a great uh, lesson in how if you if you deal with, if you're giving a speech of any kind or if you're in a position where you have a heckler, how to deal with that person or how to deal with hecklers. So. And this very easily could have escalated into the type of situation you were talking about with the journalist throwing the shoes with, like, she, I mean, you don't know. She, she's obviously agitated. She's getting up in his face. She could have, she was aggressive, but she stayed. She could have had a knife. She could have had a concealed yeah, weapon. She, she could have had anything. anything. We, we, we just don't know. Um but he's now a leader of the new Democratic Party. What is Trudeau's party? So they, they have a couple of parties that we would consider left of center. Um, and then they have a conservative party that we would also probably consider left of center. But for them, it's the it's the, the party on, on the right. In Canada, they're considered center right. I would say for American politics, go, they'd be more center. Yeah, they'd be more center. I guess that one difference between the liberals and the new Democrats is the liberals are more associated with the neoliberal policies, as they're called. So, like, um, I guess the equivalent would be Trudeau as more Hillary and then uh, Singh as more Bernie, almost. Trudeau grew up wealthier and with a strong or like a family in politics whereas Singh grew up working class immigrant it's a fresh movement in Canada right now where uh, I believe the uh, new conservative leader uh, is also going to be um, 40 Um, Andrew Scheer I think his name is during the next election Singh will be 40 Shira will be 40. Trudeau is going to be 45. We're seeing more of a youth movement uh, in Canadian politics. And I think uh, right now that's what we need with American politics. We don't need to look at Kasich. Uh, we don't need to look at Bernie. There, there are people who are like, Biden is going to be great in 2020. It, it is interesting. Like somebody like Jason Kander out of Missouri, he has, he has the charisma. He has like early credentials to try to mount a campaign. But that's just not something... I mean, Obama did it, so it is possible to do something like that around the age of 40. But it doesn't seem to be at the top of anybody's mind today. But it is interesting that that's where Canadian politics is going. And maybe that's where we're going to see the next exciting leaders come from in, on, in North America. Yeah. Okay, well, we've, we've uh, been at it for a little while just to kind of, I guess, revisit uh, a few of the things we covered we talked about the Rohingya crisis that's continuing. We have Puerto Rico. We'll have to keep, again, a closer eye on it and see how some of the things that have been done now and some of the policies and some of the ways um, PR itself has been talked about uh, through uh, this uh, destruction that they've sustained, uh, including stuff about, well, they're a lot in debt, et cetera, et cetera, how all that comes back and 
uh, changes uh, American politics or influences American politics because of a large number of Puerto Ricans coming, uh, moving over to the mainland. And Jagmeet Singh, Canada's new great brown hope. So we'll have to see how he shapes up against Justin Trudeau. Definitely interesting topics that we can probe further as we go on. Um, Check us out at uh, Samosa Caucus uh, on iTunes, uh, Android. We should be on everything. And then uh, samosacaucus.com. Please check us out there. Uh, We'll be posting some of the articles that we picked up uh, and talked about at this podcast, including that video from uh, Jagmeet with that heckler. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, try and catch you all soon. Hope to hear from you soon. All right. See you guys later. Bye.